following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Let's get into it. Uh, Romans chapter 12 is where we are. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to get to work in this passage of Scripture. We're in this series called Your Church, and uh, we're, we're looking at how the church is every one of us. It's every one of us integrally, fully, completely involved in this body called the church. Uh, so the church is not just that group of people that you saw on stage earlier on. Often we can inadvertently talk that way, even when we don't quite mean to. We sort of end up saying, well, you know, is the church going to do this? Or what is the church going to do about that? Or should the church do this? And what we often mean is, one of those people, one of the professionals going to do this, one of the paid staff going to do this. What we're trying to get back to is a biblical view of the church, a biblical ecclesiology, if you like. Uh, That is, we are all together, equally, fully part of the body of Christ, ministers and priests to one another. And the staff are here as equippers, leaders and equippers. Uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4. So we're working our way through this chapter of the Bible in Romans 12, where uh, Paul the Apostle describes for us and for his hearers in Rome what a church community is and what it can look like. He does this in really practical ways and touches on a number of different dimensions and a number of different aspects of church life, uh, not writing into perfect church circumstances, but simply calling us to honestly reflect what it means to be a church of imperfect people learning to be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another in the community of faith. So we've looked at uh, the first couple of verses on worship and touched on what it means to worship and be living sacrifices. We've looked at giftedness in that next section of Romans 12, expressing and using our gifts in the church, in the body of Christ. Uh, And then we've started in on this passage, uh, which starts in verse 9, on love. And really the whole rest of the chapter is under the banner heading of love. We started talking about this last week and how our modern conceptions of love, our contemporary definition of love, tends to be wide of the mark in terms of the way the Bible describes love. The word Paul uses is agape, which is a form of love, which which really is a uniquely Christian, distinct form of love that is self-giving love, self-denying love, self-sacrificing love. So it's not the kind of love that is driven by the engine of our feelings, but it's the kind of love that is driven by the will and a decision to put the needs of the other person or another group of people ahead of ourselves. In fact, it's a love that, that puts aside our feelings and our preferences and whether or not this is likely to be reciprocated and whether or not this is deserved or whether it's what I feel like doing in the given moment. And Agape chooses to move towards the other with sacrifice and love and service simply because that's exactly what God did for us. If God loved us only when he felt like it or when we'd done something to deserve it, we would be in a mess. So Agape says, as God has loved you, so now love one another in the church. And that's to be the operating principle of our lives together. So we're going to read again these five verses from verse 9 down to verse 13. We looked at a few of them last week and we'll just keep going and basically pick up where we left off. Uh, today and look at a few more of these phrases, but because there's just a string of phrases, one after the other, it's helpful just to hold this whole phrase together, passage together. So let me read it to you again from verse 9 down to verse 13. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. 
Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So last week we began looking at this list and Paul uses a a, a bunch of phrases here which move in a a lot of different directions. We looked at being devoted to one another in verse 10. We talked about honoring one another through encouraging words. Uh, At the end of verse 10 we talked about having a burning spirit. You remember that? Having the the zeal or the spiritual passion uh, for serving one another and using our gifts that we'd love God and love others with a burning spirit with our hearts burning for the gospel uh, and burning for one another. So today we're going to pick it up in verse 12 and 13. Just look at a couple of verses here which give us another four phrases or four descriptions of love. And I've, I've described these uh, in terms of a posture of openness. So in each case, there's, there's a type of openness that's required. You'll see what, we mean, uh, what I mean as we go along. But the, these phrases all call for love to be expressed in an openness towards God and an openness towards one another. So Paul starts by saying in verse 12, Uh, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. And I want to treat those two phrases together. Be joyful in hope and patient in affliction because they go together and they really describe the Christian response to adversity, to affliction, to struggles of many kinds. And I've, I've got to be honest, when I hit these phrases, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, they're very, very hard words to preach because even though you can sort of roll through these things joyful and patient and hope and affliction. The problem is, I think, with with verses like these, they so quickly become platitudes. I mean, if you saw that verse on a bumper sticker, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. It's it's the kind of thing people write Christians off because of, isn't it? There's this kind of just trite words, these cheesy sort of cliches, these hollow, empty platitudes. Well, I mean, it's all true, it's all good, but... Is it really grounded in reality? And what I want to do is dive in and start talking about, well, this is the Greek word for joy, and this is the Greek word for patience. But does that really help you? Because the reality is some of you are really struggling. Some of you are really going through affliction. And just saying, well, you know, you've got to be joyful, and you've just got to be patient. I mean, try telling someone with terminal cancer, you've just got to be joyful. The Bible just says be joyful. You know, it's right there. I mean, it's biblical, it's scriptural. But try telling someone with long-term mental illness, you've just got to be patient. Just be, just be more patient. Just read your Bible. Just be patient. You know, the, this, is, this is so easily in the realm of platitudes and cliches. And if I told you the Greek word for joy, is that going to help? You know, is it going to help you to know that the Greek word for this is this and, and whatever? The reality is these are things we struggle with and this stuff is incredibly hard and it doesn't always help just to be told. You've got to be more joyful and hopeful and patient. What may help though, is remembering the context that Paul is writing in here. That the banner over all of this is agape. That the banner over all of this is love. That he's not just writing to Christians to tell them, you've got to be more joyful, and when you hit hard times, you've got to be more patient. Remember, he's describing what a community looks like when agape is operating. When love is the operating principle, a self-denying, self-sacrificing kind of love, then these things become a little bit more possible. And I think what Paul is saying here is that when we're genuinely giving and receiving love to each other, and we're there for each other, and we're supporting each other, and we're, we're caring for each other, then it becomes a little easier to have a, a semblance of joy when things are hard. 
because you're drawing strength from others in the community. It becomes a little easier to have a bit of hope because you can lean on your brothers and sisters within the church community. It becomes a little bit easier to be patient in what you are going through because you can draw on the agape, the love of other people, when love is flowing within the community. These things become a little bit more within our reach. Still doesn't mean it's easy. But I think that this is not just about our willingness to give agape, to give love. It's also about a willingness to receive it when we're struggling. I think that is a big part of how we can be joyful, patient, and hopeful, is being willing to receive agape, receive love from other people, to strengthen us, to sustain us in the valley that you're walking through. When I talk to people in our church about their struggles and suffering, and I've had a lot of conversations like this, you know the most common thing I hear? In all seriousness, different ways of saying it, different variations, but the most common thing I would hear is this. Someone else has got it harder than me. Someone else is struggling more than me. No, no, someone, there's another family in greater need. Don't worry, you know, there's someone else. There's some, and of course that's true, right? So, I mean, you can't argue with that sort of logic. That's true. There, there will always be someone who's struggling a bit more than you are, just as there'll always be someone who's better off than you are. There's always going to be someone at any given moment whose life is better than yours and someone whose life's going worse than yours. But it can be a way, if we're not careful, of deflecting, can't it? Deflecting attention. And I know we're well-intentioned with this. We don't, you know, you don't want the limelight, you don't want to be needy, you don't want to be clingy, and that's, that's all fine. But sometimes it can be a way of just minimizing what's actually a very legitimate struggle. And the reality is, even though there may be someone, there will be someone going through harder times than you, your struggle is still your struggle. It's still the road that you're called to walk, and it it's needs to be validated. It, that's important. That needs to be recognized. And when we just say, well, no, there's someone else going through a harder time, that can be a way of turning down help and love and care that we may need to receive. I would say as a church that we're getting better and better and better at giving love and care to one another. I mean, I would seriously say we're just going from strength to strength. We are a caring and pastoral church. I think where we have real room to improve is in being willing to receive the love that's given. I don't know whether that's just a big city thing or a kind of middle class mentality or maybe a cultural thing. I don't know what that is, but for some reason, we just tend to be quite reticent about receiving help. And it's, it's not easy, is it? It is a humbling thing. It requires you having open arms to receive help from someone else, which requires you implicitly saying, I don't have it all together. I need some help. I need someone else to come alongside me. But that is who we're called to be. And for some of you, this might be the hardest part of agape, is actually opening your arms and receiving help and support when you need it from others who are willing to give it to you. It starts, I think, just by being willing to talk to someone else about your struggles. If you are battling, if you are struggling, especially if it's in a very kind of private and hidden way, are you willing to have one other person within the church that you just let in on that? Rather than just being completely self-sufficient and closed off from the world, is there one other person, maybe not within the church, maybe someone else, but have you got someone that you can honestly let into that struggle 
and just be, be completely real with them about what you're going through and open up to them and just not so they can fix it and not because you're looking to them for any answers, but just so they can hear your story because that's part of giving you strength to deal with what's going on is just having someone else to listen and that you can offload to that person. Have you got someone like that? Have you got people around you? And are you willing to be real with others? You know, I know how easy it is, for example, in a life group, to go right through the evening and you can have a great Bible study and never get real about people's lives, hey? It's possible, and I'm not, I know it would never happen in any of our life groups, but it's possible, right? That you can go through 12 questions on this particular passage and we all come away enlightened, and yet you've been having a rubbish week and you're really battling and that's never heard. We've got to be willing to, to speak up or at least find someone, a small group of people that we can say, hey man, I'm, I'm struggling here. I'm losing at this right now. And I, I need help. I need prayer. I need support. That's a humbling thing, but we've got to be willing to, to be broken and seen to be broken sometimes, don't we? We've got to be willing to have other people come alongside us. And when the help is offered to you, when someone offers to help and you know that really you do need it, don't brush it off, don't deflect it, don't use the there's someone struggling more than me line, but just say yes. Yes, I could do with those meals. Yes, I could use the help. Yes, that would be great. And, and have open arms to receive it because that's the way other people around you are going to be able to express agape and there'll be seasons of life when you can contribute and you can give and you can serve but some of you right now, you just need to be able to draw a bit of strength on people around you and have others that can really show love to you and you may just find that that gives you a little more joy, enables you to have a little more hope and strengthens you with some patience in the midst of what you're going through. So being willing to receive agape from other people. And then Paul says, in a very brief phrase, but so important, he says, be faithful in prayer. At the end of verse 12, again, each one of these phrases could be a sermon in its own right, could be a sermon series, and there's so much to be said about prayer, so much I'd love to say, and it's something that's been on my heart a lot over the last couple of years, this call of God, I think, for us to pray, for me personally to pray, and for us as a church to be a praying community and I think the Lord would say to us you can do a lot of things in the church you can run a lot of programs you can run the service and have kids ministry and do all of these things but without the power of God and without prayer these things won't be of real spiritual value and substance but we'll be a ship bobbing on the ocean without sails without paddles without a motor unless the wind of the spirit comes and breathes into our lives and into our church. And that happens through prayer. Prayer is not something that God wants appended on to the end of our church as a separate little program or ministry, a little tacked on thing. He would have prayer be the driving force. Prayer is the engine that drives the church, or should be. Prayer is intended to be the engine that drives the church. And if the engine is weak, a lot of other stuff can be going well. And the car can be great in every other way, but it's not going far. And it's not going to drive well unless the engine is strong. Charles Spurgeon talks of prayer as a grace-o-meter in the church. Prayer is an indicator, a barometer of the amount of divine working and spiritual power that God is willing to give. Because I, I truly believe that God has more of his power that he's willing to pour out upon us more of His Spirit that He's wanting to release, more of His presence that He's wanting to manifest. But we've got to be willing to receive it. 
We've got to ask for it. I think there are gifts that God wants to give that are only released through prayer, that are only given through prayer, and God calls us to be a praying church. And in this context, remember again, the banner over this section is love. So probably what Paul's emphasizing here when he talks about being faithful in prayer is praying for each other. And that's a willingness to be prayed for, and it's a willingness to pray for other people. I know asking for prayer can be difficult. I know coming up to these prayer chairs on Sunday can be difficult. It's sort of the walk of shame, isn't it? You know, you walk up to the chairs. Someone might see me, heaven forbid. Someone might know that I'm less than absolutely perfect. You know, someone might think I've got some kind of struggle going on. That's okay. We've just got to move past this as a church. And I don't want to minimize it. I know that can be a real thing. We are self-conscious. I get that. But we just don't, we want to be the kind of community where we can actually be okay with the fact that we're broken, wounded, dysfunctional people to a greater or lesser extent, and we need prayer from each other. We need to ask for it, and we need to be willing to receive it. In your life groups, are you praying for each other? Among people that you know within the church, are you truly praying for each other? Just asking each other, what can I pray for you? And are you willing to commit to that for people that you know in the church and people you don't know? The word Paul uses for the kind of prayer he's talking about, to be faithful in prayer, it means to stick with it, to stay with it, not just a flash in the pan, not just a sort of one-off, one time. We get all excited about prayer today, so we're going to pray now. But Paul's saying be faithful every day. Lift up people by name in the church and pray for them. Are you praying for your brothers and sisters here? particularly the ones that you know who might be struggling, but not just them. Pray for others, even if, if life's going well for them, just lift them up. And I find the best way to do this, it's not by being really verbose and coming up with all kinds of words to say, but just by mentioning the names of people in our church to God in prayer. Just lift, just mentioning the names. God, pray for so-and-so. I pray for so-and-so. As they come to your mind, as they come to your heart, you just name them to God. He knows he knows who they are, and he knows the needs they have far better than you do. Just mention them to God. And I kind of picture that like taking someone, and in my mind's eye, I'm holding them in the presence of God and just allowing him to bathe them in his love and light and grace. He knows what they need. He'll pour out his grace upon them. I don't have to try and guess at what they need and pray perfectly for that. God knows. He takes my prayer. But I'm just holding them there in front of the presence of Jesus that he might do his work in their life. And I'll tell you one way you can do this is what, what you might call the prayer of the open heart. And it's simply putting yourself in a posture where you say, God, bring to mind someone right now who I could pray for. So you, you, you could name names and, and pray for who you think needs prayer, but what about just being still for a moment and saying, God, just right now, just lay on my heart someone who needs prayer. And just allowing the Holy Spirit to bring to mind a name and then just lift that person up to God. Just pray for them. God, I don't know what, what is going on with that person, but I lift them to you and I hold them in your presence that you might bathe them with your love and your light and your power. It's a great practice. It stills our heart. It puts us in a posture of listening to God rather than just talking at God, which is what most of our prayer tends to be. And it actually allows the Spirit of God to work and move, place an impression on our heart and for God to say, I need someone right now to pray for this person who's in need, who's open, who's got an open heart, who's waiting for me to place a name on their heart. Your heart's open. Could you pray for this person? I think that's, that's God is looking for, he's always wanting to work through his people to accomplish his purposes. And that's nowhere more true than in prayer. He's looking for our hearts to be open 
because he wants to place someone on your heart to pray for. So be in that posture of having an open heart toward God and regularly be faithful in praying for our brothers and sisters. It's one of the best ways that we can show love to each other. And they may never know it, but it's one of the most profound ways that we can be a community of agape, to pray for each other. Okay, then the third thing Paul says in verse 13 is share with the Lord's people who are in need. That word share that he writes there is the word koinonia. It's such a rich word. It's an important theological word in the New Testament. In the first instance, koinonia means a sharing in relationship with someone else. And sometimes it's used in the Bible to describe our relationship with God, that we have this koinonia with God. We have this participation in God by the Spirit. We're drawn into this beautiful relationship, this communion with God. Our identity is in Christ. We have koinonia with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And because we have that koinonia with God, we have this koinonia with one another. We have this fellowship with one another, a sharing in each other's lives. We have a bond of love together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And now Paul takes it a step further and says, because you have this fellowship in Christ, you need to express that in practical ways. You have a fellowship, you have koinonia, this is given to you by God, and now what does it look like to practice koinonia, to practice sharing with one another? Well, Paul gives us one way. He says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice koinonia towards the needs of other people. In other words, be supportive, help practically, be, lend a hand to do what you need to do to meet the needs of others in the community as an expression of your love together. And I would say, honestly, this is something that we need, as much as anything, we need to celebrate within the church. Because I would say this is something that we are getting better and better at as a church. I really think we're a pastorally-minded church, and I think it's good to celebrate when things are going well, not always to beat ourselves up and, and must do better, but I think it's a good thing to take a moment and say, hey, I think this does define us as a church community. On this one, I'd say, well done. Not that this is a scorecard for our church, but I think it's still good to say it, right? Well done. I mean, I'm proud of us as a church community, that I think we genuinely do care about each other, that when needs arise, I think we are, we are good at responding. We take initiative, and I see it happening. And it's not all been driven by just a few people, but there's all kinds of stories and all kinds of ways, many of them unseen, many of them quiet, hidden ways, where we genuinely are doing this, and we're caring for each other, just in, in offering what we can, when we can, to each other and helping each other out. This is a good thing, and it's happening among us, and we should celebrate it. And if I could just call us to an even greater horizon, it would simply be to put in front of us that text in Acts chapter 2, which talks of the early church being a community where there was no needy person among them. To me, that's always just sat there as, as, as a goal, maybe an ideal of church life. But that kind of vision where there would be no needy person, of course needs arise, but as needs arise, that they'd be responded to so quickly and seamlessly by others who are willing to give and serve sacrificially that there truly would be no needy person among them. And the early church really practiced this. It wasn't just a theory for them. It wasn't just an ideal, but they practiced it. And you read it in Acts. You know, someone's in need, someone else sells their house and brings the proceeds and lays it at the apostles' feet. Now, if anyone wants to sell their house, bring the proceeds here, lay it at my feet, <laughs> Uh, if you're a visitor, I'm just kidding. But uh, we're, not, we're not really that church. <laughs> That's not who we are. 
But, uh, you know, I mean, this was, it was radical stuff, wasn't it? I mean, that actually went on in the first century. It was a radical form of love. And, and yes, we need to practice this in ways specific to our context. But what does it look like for you? This kind of love is sacrificial. It's not just loving out of convenience and loving out of ease, but saying when there is a need, it may it cost me something to respond to that. It may cost me time. It may cost me money. It may cost me something. Are we willing to give? Are we willing to die to something else in order that we might be genuinely servants of one another, sharing with the Lord's people who are in need? I think it's happening already so much among us. It's such a good thing to celebrate, and may it just continue to grow within our church community. And finally, lastly, Paul says simply, practice hospitality. The virtue of hospitality was such a strong virtue in the early church. It's such a lost art today, but when you think about church buildings, today we kind of think of a place like the hub or a space like this where we meet or auditoriums or cathedrals or whatever. In the first century, if there was anything like a church building, it was the home. If there was anything like sacred space, it was the home. That's where church happened. Churches were house churches, collection of little house churches within a city. And Christians would worship together in their homes, and they would hear Scripture taught and hear the apostles' teaching in homes. They would fellowship together in homes. And they would share the Lord's Supper together in homes. Jude talks about this, the book of Jude. There's an intriguing little verse in Jude, in Jude 12, verse 12, where he talks about these love feasts that the early Christians shared. And most translations say something like that, love feasts or love meals. But the, the word that's used in Greek is simply the word agape. The word meal or, la, or feast is not there. So Jude's simply saying you have these, these loves and he's describing a common meal. In other words, what he's doing is saying love is synonymous with breaking bread together. Love is synonymous with this fellowship of communion within the home. So much so that we could simply refer to that common meal as love or a love feast. It's a practice of agape. One of the most common or concrete expressions of agape is to share a meal together in our homes. And that's, that's nothing against sharing a meal together in other places, in a cafe, in a public space. But there's something particularly powerful, I think, about having someone into our home and sharing a meal with them there. There's something that just glues people's lives together, creates a real bond, creates koinonia, I think, in a way that very few other things can. A few weeks ago, we had a group round for dinner from the States, and they were investigating, they are only in New Zealand for a few days, investigating a, a church plant opportunity over here, and they came round for dinner, and uh, we had fish and chips together in our dining room, and then just sat down and shared some stories and perspectives on ministry in New Zealand. And this is a group of people we'd never met before, except for one of them, and probably most of them I will never see again in our lives. And yet there was a real koinonia there. There was a real fellowship, a real sharing of our lives together. And only because and through the ministry of fish and chips. You know, it wasn't anything extravagant, wasn't anything fancy. It was just being together and having a meal together in the home. But there's a real power in that. Are you willing to practice this? And, and not just to have people around to your home that you already know, that you're already mates with, but what about having people around with another person or another couple who you don't know so well? 
What about having someone that you know and then someone you maybe are just getting to know in your life group or someone you've just had one conversation with at church, but inviting them over maybe for Sunday lunch or another time in a way that works, in a way that's appropriate to you, but having them in your home, having a meal together, hearing a bit of their story. doesn't have to be a super spiritual thing. You don't have to have communion together at the end, but it's just being together and enjoying the company of other people, particularly as we form bonds of love within our church and enjoying that experience of koinonia. And this, by the way, doesn't have to be the practice of having a completely open door all the time. I mean, some people, I think, are particularly called to that. Some people just have the capacity, and it, it, it is like a gift, a calling, to have an open-door policy. Anyone can come into their place. They've got people coming and going all the time, and, and that just works for them, and that's their ministry and their calling. But very few people, I think, are like that. I'm not like that. I wouldn't have the capacity, the social capacity, to have people constantly coming and going from our home. I'm a natural introvert. So I need alone time, I need self-time, I need time by myself to recharge. I remember one night we had life group at our place, years ago now, and it must have been a long day that day, a lot of people contact, and then we had a life group at night, and then after life group, a guy from the church came over to our place just to drop something off, and Anna and I went to meet him at the door, and he stood there at the door, and we must, Anna and I must have just had completely different expressions on our face by that time of the night, because the first thing he did is just looked at both of us, pointed to Anna and said, extrovert, pointed to me and said, introvert. And I can only imagine what he saw, you know, probably Anna was buzzing, you know, she's like, people contact, fantastic, you know, just recharged around people. My face was probably long and drawn and drained and tired and desperate for bed, and, and, and that was me by that time of the night. And so it's not about being a really extroverted person, but just acknowledging the value of hospitality and saying, is there a way we could manage this as a family or as a couple or as flatmates and have people in our home in a way that works for us and respects boundaries and all of that, but could we have another couple or a person in our home uh, from time to time to practice the art of hospitality? It's such a lost art in our culture where we tend to be so dislocated and meet much more in public spaces than in the home, I think the church has a gift to give to the world of reclaiming the lost art and practice of hospitality. So this has been a long list of things that Paul's described, and it will continue on into the verses that we'll look at next week. But what I'd like to do, because I'm really conscious that last week and this week, we've just touched on things, and my intention's not been to give you a detailed summary of, of each virtue, but just to try and paint a picture of love and to try and touch on these things as Paul does that just round out what agape means and what it looks like in its various dimensions and colors and flavors and textures. But what I'd like to do as we start to prepare ourselves for a time of communion is just to take a couple of minutes of stillness and quietness with that passage on screen, and I'll read it again, to lead us into a kind of a Lectio Divina, because I'd like us to, to listen to these words again and just allow God to settle on our heart what He would have us take away from this. Because it may just be one phrase, even just one word, that God's really wanting you to take. It's virtually impossible, I would say, to take all of these things we talked last week and this week and suddenly shotgun start applying them all uh, at the same time, we just need to be still and allow God to say, what, what would be a next step for you? And from what we've talked about today, what would God, what next step would God have you take? Would it be the ministry of having an open heart toward God in prayer, being faithful 
in praying for other people within the church? Would it be the ministry of open arms? Maybe you're in a place where you say, actually, I just need to humble myself a little bit and ask for some help or receive an offer of help that's been given. Maybe it's the ministry of open hands that you've got some way in which you can love and share and support someone else that you know who's struggling. Maybe it's the ministry of the open door that God's saying, I want you to allow some people into your home so that you can encourage them and hear their story and just enjoy that ministry of personal presence with them as part of agape. What is God settling on your heart? I want to read this passage again to you and just ask you to bow your heads as I do this and and let's read this prayerfully and allow God to speak to us of the ways that he wants us to practice agape in our lives and in our church. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Father, again, we we want to remind ourselves that all this begins with your love for us. And we want to ask again that any steps that we might take toward loving each other that, God, you'd help them to be rooted and planted in your extravagant love for us. That we'd never do these things to try and earn our favor with you or maintain our standing with you. We thank you, God, that your love for us is absolutely secure. But, God, our, our hearts are stirred by a vision of a church full of agape love where love is the dominant principle where we're committed to it and father i'm really conscious of how easily this can stay in a realm that's quite vague and nebulous and disconnected from our lives so we ask you now holy spirit to really earth this in our lives to take the word or the phrase from this text that you would have us hear this morning. Just plant it in our minds and our hearts. Lord, show us the way. Show us practically what it means. I know for me, Lord, it's, it's something I, I desire but don't always know how or where to start. Show us what it means to love each other. Genuinely, sincerely we pray now God if there's 
a way in which you would have us to love another person in our church, that you'd place it on our hearts right now. If there's someone that you would want us to pray for, if there's someone you would want us to bless in some way, someone to serve, someone to invite into our home, someone to encourage, someone to simply make contact with and be present with. And we want to pray for that person now, Lord. And we want to commit before you that we will take the step that you've laid on our heart to take. And God, I pray if there's any way in which someone here needs to receive agape, needs to receive love, that you would open their heart to be willing to receive it from others and from you. Lord, if there's anyone here right now who needs to be prayed for, but they're fighting it, I pray you'd soften their heart and open their heart and make them willing to allow someone else to pray for them. Lord, anyone here who needs support and care and help but has turned it down or deflected, open their heart, God. Humble them and make them willing to reach out Lord, knowing that one day they'll be able to give the help to others, but right now they just need to be willing to receive it. Father, give us open arms to ask for the help, to receive agape. And I pray for each person in that place now that you'd bring others around them who would give. Lord, for those that just need to be in a posture of receiving today, they've got nothing in them to give right now. They've got no strength. They've got nothing. Their tank is empty. Father, we pray that you would bring others around who can be servants to them, ministers to them, who can show them agape in precisely the way that they need to receive it, through words, through presence, through practical things, Lord, whatever it is. We pray that each person, Lord, would receive agape. So God, make us a community of love. And as we Come to the table now, Lord, and we take the wafer and the juice. Remind us again, Lord, that all of this is because of your great love for us. And as we take these elements this morning, I pray you'd open our eyes again to see the depth of your love, to feel the depth of your love, to be aware of it in a new way. We're so familiar, Father, sometimes too familiar, but give us a fresh glimpse of the extent of your great love for us and move us to respond to you with grateful hearts. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.